This episode is brought to you by Hostfully. Using Hostfully, you can create a free digital guidebook for your listing so that you can save time creating a professional experience for every guest that comes and visits your spot. Learn more at hostfully.com. Welcome to Get Paid for Your Pad, the definitive show on Airbnb hosting, featuring the best advice on how to maximize profits from your Airbnb listing, as well as real-life experiences from Airbnb hosts all over the world. Welcome. Get paid for your pad. Get paid for your pad. Get paid for your pad. Welcome to episode 288 of Get Paid for Your Pad. Today I am joined by Anton Zilberberg, who is a lot of things. Number one, he is the CEO and founder of Autohost. AI, which is a, a new tool that you can help you screen your Airbnb guests. He's also the CEO and founder of QuickStay, a luxury short-term rental management company out of Toronto, and he manages over 100 properties. And he is an SDR legend, which means that he participated in the SDR Legends Live a couple of weeks ago in Puerto Rico. And we're going to be talking all about how you can effectively screen your Airbnb guests to avoid those bad experiences, the experiences that we don't want, problems with the neighbors, parties, people doing all sorts of stuff in your home that you don't want to. So we're going to teach you exactly how to avoid that. So Anton, welcome to the show. Thank you. Did you like my introduction? I loved it. <laughs> Well, we met a couple of weeks ago in Puerto Rico at the SDR Legends Live, and uh, I'm really excited to be talking to you because I think your tool is very innovative, and it's a very important topic, especially with more and more regulations popping up everywhere. The last thing that you want is to piss off your neighbors, to cause trouble in the neighborhood, and so we really want to keep those bad guests out, and so we're going to be talking all about that. You're the expert, Anton. So. Why is it so important to screen your Airbnb guests? Yeah, that's a good question. And we get asked that every time we sign up a new property, how do you screen your guests? And what methods do you take to screen your guests? And I always reply and say that in order to have a sustainable business, you want to be as effective as possible in allowing whoever you actually is going to abide by the rules to enter your property and whatever that actually means, right? So in some instances, you have guests who are coming in and they are coming into a sports event. And I'm using Toronto as an example because we have a lot of that sports travel. And they bring over some of their friends. For example, we don't allow that, right? And I'm sure that others don't allow that as well. So you need to set the expectations right from the get-go, right from the booking stage. And it's becoming increasingly important to do that because a lot of properties and a lot of owners and a lot of hosts are going live on Airbnb and people are thinking that they can just book it and use it like a hotel. And that's not true. They are coming to a residential area, right? Now, the other part that we found out is noise levels must be kept down at all times. And it's something that's very difficult to monitor because you have noise sensing devices like NoiseAware, but oftentimes people, uh, guests in particular, 
don't really know that they're being loud, right? So setting that expectation from the get-go is becoming increasingly important. Does that make sense? That makes uh, a little sense. Yeah, I was going to add, you know, it's interesting because I get quite a few emails from people that have had bad experiences on Airbnb. Um, For some reason, I guess people like to just email me and tell me their bad experience. And um, what I always ask the host is, you know, what did you do in terms of screening? And I can tell you that in 95% of the cases that I have seen, the bad experience could have been prevented if the host would have used certain screening measures or, or some due diligence process. In fact, after digging a little deeper, I, I found out that most of the bad experiences, the guests kind of either forgot to do any screening at all. And so a lot of times they actually do have a process, but you know they got like a last minute request and they don't really have time to look into it. So they just kind of accept it. And that's when things go wrong. And so I think a lot of bad experiences can be prevented by using effective screening. And the way I think about screening is that you can make two mistakes when you screen a guest, right? In an ideal world, you accept all the guests that are not going to cause any trouble and you refuse all the guests that will confuse, cause trouble. Now, that's an ideal world that's probably not going to happen, right? But I think it's important to realize there's two types of mistakes, so to speak, that you can make. Number one, you can allow a guest into your property that's going to cause trouble, but you can also refuse a guest that would have not caused trouble. I don't know if that's good English grammar, but uh, I think uh, I think you get the point. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, th- that's really interesting because with a growing property management company or if you're a host that is trying to optimize for revenue, it's very difficult to choose who you want and who you don't want, right? Uh, obviously, I always want the two grandparents coming to visit their grandchild who's attending university and they're from a low-risk country, from Europe, for example. They're coming for multiple days. And all they want is a comfortable place to stay, and they're not going to be making any nuisance and so forth. Unfortunately, that doesn't always happen, and sometimes you get requests from locals, for example. Right? While you're growing your property management company, and while you're trying to increase those revenues and trying to book those nights that don't go booked, you need to take additional risk. And that becomes a bit of a problem when you get a complete black box of a guest that's coming to you. And what you want to do in that case is you want to ask the right questions. What is the purpose of your stay? Why are you coming over? Uh, Why are you interested in my property? Where are you coming from? What is your experience with Airbnb, with short-term rentals? And it's not always that reviews actually give you the whole story, right? There are certain parameters and characteristics that also tell you if the guest is going to behave or not behave. And some of the examples that we use is a one-night stay over the weekend, a local from within the surrounding area. And the way that we think about this is why do they need to stay in an Airbnb property that costs $300 a night if they could just take an Uber back home for $50, $60 a night, right? Or for $50, $60. And we're always trying to answer that question. And sometimes we ask the guest, can you please tell us what your plans are? And sometimes they say, I'm going to do sightseeing. And if they're coming from 
45 minutes away from Toronto, the likelihood of them coming to do sightseeing in Toronto is very unlikely, right? So you need to effectively figure this out and really ask the correct questions to get the right answers from the guest. Does that answer your question? Yeah, so I think you bring up a, a very good point. Like asking questions is, is a really good way to, uh, to screen your guests. And it's about what questions are you asking them. And I think it's about seeing if the story that they're telling you, if it makes sense, right? If, if somebody lives 30 minutes away and they're coming for sightseeing, then that really doesn't make much sense. So my question to you is, do you always ask these questions or do you only ask these questions if, if you have a reason to ask them? For example, if you, if you have like a low risk profile guest, do you still ask those questions? Yes, we try to ask the guest as many questions as possible to understand their intent. And that becomes increasingly important the more guests you host and the bigger your company grows because you're trying to optimize for higher revenues and higher occupancy, right? All of that is increasingly important. And sometimes when you're asking a guest, hey, can you just tell me what is your plan for the city? What is the intended purpose of your stay? And they're saying, oh, I'm just coming in to have my boyfriend's party, right? Or my boyfriend's birthday party. And we're like, uh, did you read the house rules? We do not allow any parties. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't read the house rules. And they go ahead and they cancel. So even asking that simple question, assuming that they haven't read the house rules or have read the house rules can give you a better indication of their intended purpose of stay. Understood. And I guess it's also good to know that information in order to accommodate your guests as best as possible, right? If, if a guest says that they, they want to do a certain type of sightseeing, you can then give them some tips on you know, how to get a discount or what the best way is to buy the tickets or whatever. Of course. Uh, it also adds a perfect guest experience because sometimes we get uh, couples saying that they're coming for an anniversary. So leaving them a bottle of wine, for example, goes along the way of, hey, this is, you came to the right place where we actually want you here, right? We're respecting you here and you can provide the best experience possible for your guests and that will give you increasing rankings, additional bookings. Airbnb has a very good algorithm to match you with other guests who have similar characteristics as those guests. And what we started seeing as well is that if we start accepting a lot of one-night guests, all of a sudden, Airbnb is matching our property with more one-night guests, which is quite interesting because that increases our risk portfolio. Right. So you've mentioned a few risk factors and the length of stay is a risk factor, I guess. Is it shorter, is riskier? So that's an interesting question. We've, we've seen that riskier reservations evolved from being one-night stays to potentially being six night stays, seven night stays, all the way to a month stays. So we separate risk into two categories. We separate them into general risk, the parties, the nuisance, the rule violations, and so forth, additional guests, potential damage to the property, and the unfortunate fraud, identity theft, and more of a criminal activity. So the criminal activity at the beginning when they started, they were going after one night stays with local phone numbers. We were able to actively flag that and other hosts and other property management companies that we spoke with also had similar flags that they were looking for. However, 
because we were denying them all the time and we were canceling them all the time, they actually started becoming a lot more elaborate. And what they've done is they started registering with phone numbers that are out of province or from the United States. And they started making reservations that are much longer and higher in ADR and average daily rates and in revenue as well. So it became increasingly difficult to filter them out just by simply profiling. We've had to take additional measures, such as ask them for ID and take a higher security deposit and uh, potentially ask them to send us their social media information. And if that didn't work, we tried to reach them over the phone. And we frequently found out that those who are, have bad intentions and potentially fraudulent reservations never pick up the phone and they would instantly reply back with an SMS. That was a bad sign, right? Because you know that it's either a, a potentially malicious intent or even a fraudulent reservation or worse. Now, you've asked about ranking factors. The length of stay is a ranking factor. However, it's just one of the ranking factors that we look at. We look at anything from the booking channel, the source, so Airbnb, VRBO, Booking.com, Expedia, and so forth. We give it different ranking parameters. Then we look at certain things like what is the type of property that they're coming to? And the example that I use is if there's a one guest booking at a studio apartment that occupies two, generally speaking, they're not coming in to have a party inside, right? It doesn't actually make sense because there isn't enough space. But if there's a one guest booking a one night stay from a booking channel that doesn't have any form of verifications, ID or credit card verifications, and they're booking in 16-person occupancy, that is likely to be a really high-risk reservation. It's unlikely that they need a last-minute stay, and it's unlikely that they actually need a 16-bedroom house just for one person, right? So you're either missing on revenue opportunities or the guest has some form of a malicious intent, so you need to filter them out correctly and flag for all of those things. So when you talk about different platforms, like which ones are more high risk than others? So that's also quite interesting because the platforms are actually constantly evolving. So what we consider high risk is, again, we have two forms of risk. We have the general risk and the fraud risk. So Airbnb, for example, has a very, very good fraud detection and prevention algorithm. So it's almost guaranteed that you'll get paid because Airbnb will actually flag the guest's payment credit card or the guest payment if it's fraudulent. And Airbnb doesn't do a good job at the general risk and the nuisance. And everybody's familiar with those types of activities. You've heard all those bad parties happening and all of that stuff. So those are usually coming in from Airbnb. And that's because People know that they're coming, that they're booking on Airbnb, they're booking somebody's home. So they know that there's a lack of screening and they understand that there's a lack of security process inside. So they are thinking that they can get away with that. That's related to Airbnb. However, if you go to other booking channels, such as booking.com, for example, they don't do anything in terms of fraud prevention at the moment. They are moving towards payment collections and guaranteeing that you will eventually get paid by processing the guest's credit card and sending you the funds via their virtual card. However, you're still opening yourself up to identity theft issues and potentially higher risk reservations and potentially, if you don't screen them well, 
abuse and house rule violations like smoking inside the property, loud noise, bringing additional guests, bringing pets, and other rules that you might have that your guests might violate. So you need to collect security deposits and Booking.com itself opened up, I think, a big opportunity because booking uh, a lot of property managers who are growing outside of Airbnb are going to Booking.com and then they're learning that it requires a completely different process to work with Booking.com, right? It's not as simple as Airbnb all of a sudden. You need to have payment structure set up. You need to have ID collection set up. You need to have a security deposit collected. You need to communicate with them differently. All of a sudden, your phone increases as well, right? So there's a lot of process that's involved on going outside of Airbnb. However, the return is also there because Booking.com has a massive distribution channel and they're one of the biggest advertisers in Google, for example, right? When you're talking about other risky platforms, VRBO, Canada Stays is the Canadian branch here in Canada. They're also quite risky for general risk. However, they do perform a little bit better on the payment risk. You're still exposing yourself to identity theft issues and all of those problems that come with listing on all those other platforms. So you're saying on, on Booking.com, for example, you run a higher risk of uh, fraudulent bookings, which would lead to uh, chargebacks, for example. That's correct, yes. So in order for you to fight chargebacks and a lot of growing property managers know that, you should collect the guest's ID, for example, and if you can, an imprint of the credit card. There's two types of transactions that can occur. There's card on hand transaction and there's an online transaction, right, where you just have the guest credit card number. So when you're having just a guest credit card number, you need to prove that the guest actually stayed with you. So you're opening yourself up for a chargeback or a dispute. So you need to collect ID, right? If you need to collect ID, that means that you need to store that ID and that opens yourself up and your company to potential privacy violations, right? So you need to have and understand all of those issues and all the risks that you're taking. Let's talk a little bit more about the general risk. You're saying on Airbnb, there's not a lot of fraud risk, but there still is a decent amount of general risk. We talked a little bit about the length of stay being a, a potential indicator of risk and also where the person's coming from. If they're a local person, then uh, you probably should screen a little bit more and ask questions about the reasons that they're coming. So what are some other factors that you look at in order to determine how big the general risk is? Cool. So we look at a bunch of different parameters. It starts with the number of guests, the type of property, the ADR, if it's average ADR, low ADR, high ADR. We look at the booking platform. We look at things like the day of week that they're staying. We consider a Friday reservation, a Saturday reservation to be a lot riskier than let's say a Monday reservation, right? If somebody's coming in on Monday and it's one guest at a two bedroom apartment, it could potentially be a business traveler. However, if it's a one guest coming in for one night booking from booking.com on Friday, last minute, less likely that it's a business reservation and more likely that they are intending to have a party or break some of your house rules by bringing additional unregistered guests. Other parameters that we look at is the amount of nights. We spoke about that briefly yesterday and the number of nights is kind of fluctuating. It's, it's important. The number of nights is important for the general risk. What we found out is that Airbnb reservations that are longer in length are generally safer 
However, if it's not coming from Airbnb and it's coming from other platforms, it could potentially open you up to fraudulent uh, bookings and chargebacks down the line if you haven't collected the guest's ID. Awesome. Are there any, any other factors that you look at? Sure. Uh, there's about 200 different parameters and combinations of parameters that we, that we consider, that we look at. We look at area codes and phone numbers and locality. We look at the maximum occupancy. We look at the property type. So we consider villas, for example, or cottages to be higher risk than studio apartments and condo buildings. In condo buildings, particularly in Toronto, there's security, fortunately. So security can let us know if anything is kind of standing out and, not, and if guests are bringing additional guests or violating some of our house rules. And what we end up doing is uh, we take all of those parameters and we give them a score and we run all those correlations to provide a picture of how risky is this guest. And then you base your decision on whether to host the guest or not on that entire picture that you're shaping. That's correct. We try to, at first we try to provide our team with all the top risks that we found. Then we try to ask the guests a bunch of different questions based on those risks. So for example, if they're coming in on a Friday, we want to ask them, hey, what is the intended stay? Why are you coming in on a Friday? What are you, what are you doing, right? If they have a local phone number, if they have a local phone number, but they're saying that they're coming in for sightseeing or they've never been to Toronto, we can ask them, a bunch of other questions, right? Who are you coming with? What are you planning to do? Why are, did you decide to book a place with us and not somewhere else? We've had situations where a high-risk guest, for example, was somebody who booked a two-bedroom apartment and their ADR, their average daily rate, was really, really high. And they said that he's just coming with his girlfriend. Now, if he's coming with his girlfriend, there's absolutely no need for him to pay $600 a night. He can pay $300 a night hey, I have a $300 a night one-bedroom apartment for you guys. Why do you need to pay a lot more money, right? All of those are questions that you need to ask and understand from the guests right from the get-go in order to minimize the risk of having a bad incident occur at your property. One question. There's uh, an Airbnb, at least, there's two ways that you can receive a booking, right? You can receive an instant booking or you can receive a booking request. So when you get a booking request, you don't have as much information you don't have the telephone number yet for example right that's correct so the telephone number you can only really look at when you're getting an instant booking so i'm, so I'm guessing when you're getting a booking request you just have to go with fewer information with less information that's correct yes so when somebody's sending us a booking request we take whatever information we have available to us and we try to build a risk score and a risk portfolio for that guest. Once the booking becomes confirmed, we run the test again to see if it changes. And sometimes it actually does change, right? A guest can be lower risk and all of a sudden we get more information presented and all of a sudden they become high risk. The number of guests has potentially changed. The phone number has become available they sometimes decide to go with a different property that we have. That also happened a couple of times. But the guest's risk score still changes based on a bunch of those parameters and re-evaluations at any given point. 
Does that cause any issues? Because I'm thinking, I know that when you get an instant booking, I think you can cancel unlimited amount of times as long as you have a valid concern without incurring any penalties. That, do you agree with that? Yes, Airbnb changed their instant book policy and then you can cancel within 24 hours if you feel uncomfortable with the guest. So what we've started seeing is a lot of our property managers, they are actually trying to move towards instant book and they're trying to verify the guest as much as possible. And if the guest does not agree to the house rules, does not respond or does not provide sufficient information, then they go ahead and cancel, right? Again, it's important and depends on your business strategy. Some hosts, for example, if a guest is coming to their home, they want to ask additional pieces of information to feel completely comfortable with the guest. If it's a property management company that is optimizing for their revenues, they have slightly higher risk tolerances for guests and they can afford to wait a little bit longer before the guest responds or they can potentially send somebody to greet the guests and verify them in person if necessary. Right. So when you get an instant booking, you can cancel as many times as you want and there's no penalties as long as you have a valid concern and you get those valid concerns from the communication and from all those other factors that you mentioned. But what if you get a booking request, you accept the request and then it turns out later, once you get the phone number and everything and you exchange some more messages, now you want to cancel. Now you can't cancel penalty free anymore. Yeah, that's a good question. So what we do is we actually tell the guest that, hey, this property does not allow, here are the rules and we present them with a very strict set of rules. And we tell them, if you do not agree with those rules, please go ahead and cancel on your side and we will approve a 100% refund. We found out that 99% of cases, they are no hesitations because they do not want to be kicked out of the property. They do not want to face potential fines or potential disturbances. And really the worst thing that can happen is that if you are planning a party and you're coming on site and your party gets ruined because there's noise sensors inside, you did not have a successful night, right? <laughs> so as long as you set those expectations for the guests, usually they cancel by themselves. And if you're strict enough with your wording, it's incredibly effective. And then when the guest cancels, do they lose the guest uh, the fees? I think Airbnb has a policy now that if they cancel within a certain amount of time, they get refunded the guest fees based on your cancellation policy. However, in some instances, we would call Airbnb and we would ask Airbnb to refund the guest fees and say we're uncomfortable with this reservation or the guest agreed to cancel and they're asking how to get the guest fees back because we have the super host phone numbers with priority customer service which is a little bit easier to get a hold of than the regular Airbnb general line. Understood. Awesome, Anton. Well, I think we have a lot more to cover. We won't have enough time in this episode. So what I suggest is uh, let's do another episode next week and then we can go through some other topics. Like, for example, how do you improve security and prevent parties on site uh, using noise sensors, cameras, etc.? But also we can talk more about ID collections, security deposits and rental agreements, the importance of personally identifiable information, over screening. Let's talk about those subjects in the next episode. What do you think? Sounds amazing. There's tons of hidden revenue opportunities that we found out that come with guest screening. 
and we can definitely touch on those elements just to give you a kind of a sample. We were able to increase our revenues by about 15% by removing a lot of booking restrictions. So we can go over those and how we make it happen. Increasing your income by 15% by removing booking restrictions, that's pretty awesome. So essentially how, how you're doing that is because you've improved your screening process so much that you, that allows you to remove those booking restrictions and you end up making more money. That's correct. That sounds great, man. I'm very curious to hear about that. And I'm sure that listeners are curious as well. So let's get Anton back on uh, next week for another episode of uh, Get Paid for Your Pad. So Anton, thank you so much for joining. Do you want to quickly share how people can, can get in touch if, uh, if you're in Toronto and you want Anton to manage your property or if you want to check out uh, Anton's uh, service, autohost.com. IA and completely automate your your screening process. So let us know let us know how people can in, can get in touch and where they can look for information. Anton, yeah, so you can check out autohost.ai and sign up for a demo. We have self onboarding, so you can give it a full try. If you're using a PMS, a property management software that we support at the moment, you can also reach out to me directly via LinkedIn, which would probably be the best option. And I'll be more than happy to schedule a one-on-one with you, give you advice and go over your business needs and to see how we can help. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot, Anton. And to the listeners, thanks for listening. And of course, uh, next Thursday, there will be another episode with Anton Zuberberg. So we'll see you then. Get paid for your pet. Get paid for your pet. Get paid for your pet.